Hey, and welcome to the Humanity Church Podcast. So excited that you're here. We hope that you enjoy this week's talk and it really connects to your life in a meaningful way. If you're live in the Pomona area, we would love to have you at one of our gatherings at 10 a.m. or at one of our humanity groups that meet all throughout the week all over the city. If you want more information about our community, you can go to www.humanitychurch.com or download our app on your phone on Apple or Android. If you like what you're hearing here and want to continue to support the ongoing work at Humanity, you can text the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977 and give back financially in just about 10 seconds. Hey, and here's this week's talk that was given live at our Sunday gathering at Humanity Church. Jesus, thank you for uh, just the gift of this morning and being with one another and the life that's already present here because of who you are. And we ask that you would speak to us today, God, that you would open up our hearts and minds to this really important conversation that you are highlighting, at least in our nation right now, and that you would move us to greater compassion, understanding, and purpose as we step into this conversation. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last year, unless you were hiding under a rock, you know that our nation exploded into a conversation around justice, specifically around racial justice. But we, we were thrust into a moment where we were in a crisis, and this conversation came front and center to the nation's understanding. After, of course, the, the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, it felt like we were thrust into not just a conversation, because it didn't feel like a conversation, right? I don't think no matter where you're at on the the, the spectrum, it didn't feel like a conversation. It felt like a moment of polarization, conflict, confusion, protests, rioting, and everyone clashing with one another, longing for some type of reform to what was taking place around us. And if you also don't live under a rock, you know that we were suddenly filled with hashtags. Hashtags everywhere. Hashtag. Now, I, when I talk about this, don't get me wrong. I, I post really important things on my social media. I think social media is a great platform to communicate and to, to transform. But I've never actually found someone get into a social media argument and have their heart changed. Isn't that crazy, right? But, but it's almost as if there was, this, there was this extreme movement that was taking place, and it was fueled by all of these hashtags. And then people started hashtagging things, and then we started arguing about the hashtags, right? Like, what was the correct hashtag? What hashtag should you post? Shouldn't you post? And then we started having hashtags to combat the hashtags. And it became really a conversation about what hashtag you're using, not about what's actually taking place. And so in the middle of what I believe was an important spiritual conversation, we got into a conversation about something as silly as hashtags. And in that moment, when I I was praying about, God, what do you want us to do as a community? What do you want me to, how do you want me to respond to this moment as a leader, in our leader? And I heard three things that God told me in that moment. He said, empathize. Call as many of your black and brown brothers and sisters and have as many conversations as you can right now. And just, just listen. Just listen and empathize in that moment. The, the second thing that I heard was listen. Just keep listening. Keep your ears open. And the third thing that I heard, which was absolutely frustrating for me, was Wait. Now, if you know me, I'm not a guy who likes waiting. I am the guy who's like, let's get it done yesterday. Let's have the moment now. Let's get it moving. But God just said, wait, which is frustrating for me because I was also being told that silence is violence. And so I didn't know, am I supposed to say something? Am I not supposed to say something? But I I clearly heard God say, wait. And I was clear up front. I'm waiting. I am not being passive. There's a difference between the two of those things. So I was in a season of, of waiting And here's the thing that I notice, and I think this is why God asked me and our community to wait in this, is this. We make really poor choices when we're either in anger or in passion. Have you noticed that? Like, no one one gets furiously angry and then says, I made really good choices in that moment, right? (laughs) How How many of you have been, like, in love, and all of a sudden you're, like, making, like, you look back on that moment, and you're like... That was a dumb choice, right? Like, how did, how did that seem like a good choice in that moment? It's because you're fueled with passion in that moment. And so I recognize that this is not the time to have a conversation around what God has to say about this. Because we were being fueled by anger and passion. And passion, when directed correctly, can actually move us towards wholeness. But 
I just realized this was not the time, and I knew that there would be a day when the hashtag stops and we're here. I knew that there would be a day when, when this would no longer be like a political movement and we could actually have an actual conversation around what needs to take place. We could pause and examine this, this space through the lens of the scriptures and what God has to say about this really important conversation around justice. And part of the, part of the conflict that I noticed last year was that so much language was being thrown out and People were talking about the same words and had no idea what they were actually saying. Now, now not that the person individually didn't know what they were saying, but, but people would throw out a term and it would mean one thing to one person and another thing to another and you'd be talking and missing one another. And so we had all kinds of conversation in all kinds of places around things like whiteness and privilege and internalized racism and structural racism and fragility and anti-racism and justice and equality and inclusion and equity and diversity. And we throw out all these words and we assume that we're all talking about the same thing. And then we wonder why we're missing one another in the conversation And then when we're not actually working off of the same dictionary definition of some of these terms, we then enter into a space, we'll say, well, why aren't you agreeing with me? Or why are you agreeing with that? And then we're confused as to why there's so much division because we can actually be using the same words and talking about two very diametrically opposed concepts. And that's part of what's gotten us into this place is that we haven't paused to have a conversation around this. And what I want to do is have a conversation about this very controversial subject right now through the lens of the scriptures. And just bring it back to some language that for those of us who are followers of Jesus will make sense. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus might actually bring clarity to a cultural conversation that seems to be spinning right now and not actually creating a lot of forward movement in this. Because I actually think when you have a conversation about justice through the lens of the scriptures, it's probably the most powerful conversation that you can have about it. And, P.S., we're not going to solve the world's problems in a three-week series. So, so if you're looking to, on, uh, in three weeks from now, on March 21st, when we complete this series, to have, hey, we put a bow on that, we're wrapped up, and we're good, that's not going to be the case. So this will be an ongoing conversation, but we're at least going to set the table for a continuing conversation around what it means to be a biblical people of justice. See, what, what I've noticed lately is that We find ourselves at times thrust into a cultural conversation, whether we like it or not, and we start examining the scriptures through the lens of culture, which is a very dangerous place to be. It's actually a very dangerous place to be. It actually allows you to say, hey, you know what? We have so much agriculture that needs to be uh, like taken care of and needs to be harvested, and we don't have enough workers to do that. You know, the Bible talks about slavery, So I think that maybe we should get some slaves. That's examining the scriptures through the lens of the culture. It's looking out and saying, hey, these people need conquering. How do we do that? Well, you know, they need Jesus. And so we need to have an inquisition and step into that space. When we examine the scriptures through the lens of culture, we find ourselves in all kinds of interesting conversations around, hey, maybe we should start a war because, you know, there are enemies, and if we got rid of them, we could make this place a more holy space. And so when we start examining the scriptures through the lens of culture, we can justify almost anything, and we have throughout the years. So I actually want to flip the script. So you, you should actually be a little concerned if Jesus agrees with every single one of your political ideas. No matter where you're at on the spectrum. <laughs> like, like that, that might cause you to, to pause and go, hmm, right? You, you, might also, you might also pause if you're like, man, Jesus agrees with every economic and fiscal and social position that I have. You might also pause as well and go, hmm, that's odd. Because am I making God into my own image or am I actually being conformed to his image in those moments? And so this is a conversation that is so critical to engage with what does the scriptures say first, and then how do I apply that to what's culturally happening around me? Now, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, this may seem like a really strange concept, but I guarantee you that when you get into the teachings of Jesus, you will find that it has real powerful ramifications to what's taking place in almost every sector of society. 
And it actually transforms so much. See, I also think we forget how countercultural Jesus' ideas were to what most of us naturally drift into and where governments naturally drift into and where societies naturally drift into. That he wasn't countercultural to be countercultural. It's just that the kingdom of God is countercultural to the kingdom of this earth. And so when we find ourselves engaging a conversation around justice, it should ruffle all of our feathers because it's countercultural to to our ways at times in this space. There, there has been this pendulum that swings back and forth that I've noticed from generation to generation around what God cares most about. And you can actually just watch it. If you, you just watch and read through generations of theological texts, which I, I have a family who, who is filled with authors, so I can actually go back and read my great-grandfather's commentaries on the scriptures and I can see what his position was around both what does it look like to be heavenly-minded and concerned about the condition of the soul versus what does it look like to be concerned about our life here and now. And we go back and forth around what God cares most about. And either we find ourselves swinging so focused on the afterlife that really nothing on this life cares, or we find ourselves swinging to only caring about everything that's happening here on this earth that our souls really are ignored in the process. And so we find ourselves wrestling with conversations like, what does God care more about that an orphan can eat or that their soul is redeemed? And we're thrust into this false binary that we should never have to choose between. We're thrust into saying, well, it has to be either or, not that they could actually symbiotically work with one another. See, what I've noticed is that so often the church either becomes so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good, or they attempt to fix every social issue for getting the darkness of the heart that is fueling the social issues. And it has to be a both and. It, can't, it doesn't have to be an either-or. It was never supposed to be an either-or in the middle of this. In fact, one sign that your soul has actually been connected to God is that you actually care about the things in this world that are off base. And vice versa, to, to authentically care about the things that God cares about, your soul must be transformed to look like him. So it takes both working together to create the world around us that we look at in order to care about what God cares about, your soul has to be connected to God, and God is a God of justice, whether you like it or not. And when we just look through the scriptures, it's filled with that actual word. In Amos 5.24, it says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Most of you know that Martin Luther King or James Coney said that. You didn't know that Amos said that, did you? Isaiah says, 117, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Isaiah 61, 8 says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. Psalms 106.3, blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. So to have a conversation about who God is, is to have a conversation about justice. Now, the word justice in the scriptures is almost synonymous with the term Righteousness. In fact, they, they are almost interconnected. In fact, almost everywhere in the scriptures that you see the word justice, it is followed or preceded by or connected with the term righteousness. They, they go hand in hand with one another. See, one of the things, one of the ways that you can think about justice, if we're going to define terms, is that justice is actually bringing righteousness back to the world where it is absent. It is stepping into places where, where right being is absent from either a person or a space and saying, we are here to bring righteousness back into that space where it is missing. Which means to understand what is just, we must know what is right. That they must go hand in hand together with one another. And to know what is right means that there has to be some sort of universal moral standard for the world. Now, I know in our culture today, that's kind of like a dirty conversation. But if you actually don't have that, the entire thing falls apart. The entire thing actually starts to crumble in the middle of that. See, it's actually quite powerful that human beings have a base standard for morality that every single one of us understand that we're just born into. That no matter what culture you go to, these things seem to be ingrained into the culture. Like, 
Sociologists have never been to a tribe that has been disconnected from modern civilization or anthropologists have never stepped into a space like that where a tribe or a culture or a people did not condone killing in some way, shape, or form, or at least murder. Seems like that's written on the human spirit. That, that whenever, whatever culture you step into, there's this universal understanding that we should not steal what isn't ours. There's this universal understanding that we should not be deceptive in how we work with one another. There's a universal understanding of, hey, I shouldn't cheat other people when I've given my word or when I've stepped into this space. And so there seems to be a baseline understanding for what is good and what is right. But what about more complex issues? Like the poor, the immigrant, the incarcerated, our enemies. Things get a little more muddied in those conversations See, oftentimes what happens in those conversations is we start using language like this. Well, I feel this is what we should do. Or based on my understanding, this is what we should do. But it always has to be bigger than that. It has to be. Because if you are basing justice on a feeling, we know what feelings do, right? (laughs) They shift constantly. They shift with every situation that we find ourselves in. See, most people say that other people shouldn't starve to death, but the most important question is, why do we all believe that? Why do we all believe that? See, there there must be some universal standard that, that is written inside of us, and it is not enough to say, because I feel like that, that will never be enough. See, without an absolute plumb line for what is right for everyone on the planet, regardless of your skin color or regardless of how much money you make or regardless of of your gender, without all of that, we have to actually step into that. Without it, it's all subjective. Without, it will change with the wind. It will change with the culture. It will change with the moment. This is, by the way, why modern politics don't work, because we all come with our feelings and opinions, not absolute truth around what it means to be human and what it means to be right and what it means to live in goodness. So in other words, justice only works with a universal moral standard that applies to every single one of us. In fact, the word justice in Hebrew is sedekah, and it literally means conformity to a moral or ethical standard. That's what it means. And you see it all throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 28, starting in verse 16, Isaiah said this. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So he's basically saying, hey, I'm laying a foundation here for humanity. And this is the foundation. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and the water will overflow your hiding place. See, God himself is actually saying there is an absolute standard, and my righteousness has to be the plumb line for justice, or else you will default to all kinds of other standards that are usually less than I've ever intended for humanity to live by. So we start there. So so we we know what the standard is for justice and that there is a standard for what it means to be right. But we also then have to know what is the purpose of man if we're going to have a conversation around what it means to be a people of justice. See, until that question is answered, we can't move forward either. We have to have a standard for righteousness, but then we also have to know what, what people are for, why we were made, why we're here. See, if I went into a remote tribe somewhere that had, had been disconnected from society and I handed them a broken watch and I just said, here's a gift to you, then they're immediately going to start trying to figure out what to do with it, right? They're going to take it and they're going to say, oh, this, this could be, uh, oh, it could be a magnifying glass. We could pull the glass off and we could use it for like a magnifying glass to heat up our food. That's what it's for. Or they could take it and say, oh, oh this is like a hammer. This is harder than anything we have. We can start hammering things with this, Right? Or maybe they'll, get, maybe they'll even get close and say, oh, this is, this is a piece of jewelry. I can, I can wear it on my wrist, and now it's a beautiful piece of jewelry. See, the thing is, until I actually know what something is purposed for, I don't know if I'm using it in a right way or wrong way. I don't know if I'm actually treating it in a way that it was designed to be treated, let alone if it's broken or not. See, because as soon as I figure out what the watch is for, then I can go, oh, It's broken. In the same way, until we answer the questions, what is the purpose of human beings? 
We don't know how we, they should be treated and whether or not how we are treating them is off or not. So we actually have to start both with what is the moral standard for humanity and what the heck are we here for? <laughs> See, because until I know its purpose, I don't know how I should be using it, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, let alone if it's broken. See, because if I don't understand the purpose of humans, then humans can just be tools to be used. In fact, that would make the most logical sense. Because if we are just simply organs, bones, and skins with a CPU running up here, owning one would be completely acceptable. Until we understand that we are, we are more than just a clump of cells together, using one another for sex or labor is completely fine. So we actually have to know what is the purpose of us before we move forward. But if we are those who carry the spiritual DNA of God within us, if we are like what we talked about a few weeks ago, the image bearers of God created for love and created from love, then all of humanity must be treated and elevated as such. That all of humanity must be seen as such. See, this brings purpose to righteousness. And when you bring purpose to righteousness, when we recognize, oh, that person over there is an image bearer of God. And righteousness is not being practiced around them. Now I can know what justice looks like. Because something is being violated over there. In the greatest expression of who God is, then we can recognize if humanity is broken or not and how we are to step into the picture of one another. See, actually, this is why I think, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we don't need to run for this conversation. I think this is one of the most powerful conversations that we have, because our common drive for justice, the fact that we all have this morality written on our soul, is actually one of the greatest evidence for a God that has woven morality into the fabric of the universe. The fact that we are all driven to say, no, that's not right. And that's not how people should be treated. And that should not be the standard by which we engage one another informs us that there is a God who has actually designed us and the world around us. And then our intrinsic understanding that people are precious shows that we are actually made in the image of God. So justice only makes sense when there is a God who has woven a universe that has a moral standard into it and people are known as image bearers of God. Without those two things, it is impossible to have justice. It is only possible to have a nice, polite society. Otherwise, it's just all opinion. I want you to take a look at this film from our friends at the Bible Project around what biblical justice looks like and how we might engage it. Let's take a look. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? 
The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You can find that video on the Bible Project online. It's a powerful demonstration of that. When we, when we think about justice, there are, there are really three concepts that come up when we talk about it. There, there is what's oftentimes known as redistributive justice, where, which means essentially that we take all the goods, all the power, all the money, all the resources, and we distribute to everyone equally. And this is actually not in the Bible, it's oftentimes misconstrued. We're going to talk a lot about this next week as to why this is not in the scriptures. And this also, by the way, is why the scriptures do not place anything in front of justice. 
I'm getting ahead of myself next week, but it's why there's no such thing as social justice or racial justice or, or economic justice. There's just justice. And that's important as we step into this conversation. But the other conversation around justice or type of justice that people often talk about is called retributive justice. And it basically is this, that we are called to punish wrongdoings without any concern for restoration. Now, here's the thing. While the Bible does talk about reaping what you sow, and it does talk about, hey, if you have wronged someone, if you've stolen something from someone, you need to give it back. You need to pay that price. You need to actually uh, re-engage society based on what you have taken from someone. This is actually not the focus in the scriptures. Both are reactionary to what's going on in the world around us. But like we, see, like we saw in this film, Really, the justice that God talks about that we see over and over in the scriptures is this concept of restorative justice. And that is actually actively seeking out where unrighteousness has plagued people, where where there is a lack of goodness and hope and freedom, seeking that out and then intervening to restore the righteousness where it has either been taken or where it is no longer being practiced. And this is actually us looking to see where are the marginalized, where are the weak, where are the oppressed, and how can I go restore righteousness and goodness and light and hope to those places. In Isaiah 58, 6 through 9, when, when people are asking God, what kind of fast do you want from us? We just talked about Lent. This is what God responds. This is, not the kind of fa- is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. It is, not to sh- is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide, provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, I am here. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and malice talk. See, when God talks about, hey, what kind of fast do I want? He says, I want a fast of justice. I want people who are willing to step into the world and say, hey, unrighteousness is plaguing these people, that person, that individual, this organization. I need you to step into that to bring light into those spaces. See, if all people, every single person on the planet is an image bearer and a potential child of God, and God has woven fabric into the universe and has a moral standard by which he longs all of us to step into, then it would make sense that we as a community would be called to honor that. Would be called to step into restoring that everywhere it has been taken away and violated. See, this kind of justice is both reactive, where we can see something in front of us taking place where unrighteousness is being penetrated into a person or a family or a culture or a unit, but it's also active. It actually calls us to go out and seek where justice is needed, where righteousness must be restored. Where he, he wants us to go find those who are oppressed and marginalized and weak and say, hey, I will step into this. It's one of the reasons why we as a church are committed to the work that's taking place with Sheer Love in Thailand. If you don't know the work in Sheer Love, it's an organization that helps men and women come out of the sex trade, gives them a trade, specifically in the hair, cosmetology, barbering industry, and then allows them to go make a living for themselves. See, Diana, who, who was the brainchild for this organization, was a celebrity hairstylist in L.A. I mean, talk about having everything you need, not really needing to go anywhere. And when she started seeing what was taking place with these women, who because of economic circumstances were essentially looking out at their life saying, I don't have a choice but to sell my body to another person to make money to feed my family, recognized, oh, injustice has taken place here. That, that, un, that, that there is a lack of righteousness taking place in this space. So she packed up everything and moved to Thailand and said, I'm going to seek out men and women who because of unrighteousness and injustice need a voice for them to say there is a better way. There is a possibility for hope and goodness and righteousness and beauty in your life. And because of who Jesus is, I am compelled to not just sit back and say that's sad, but to go act on their behalf. 
to restore righteousness to those places. See, here is the differentiator, I think, between what the culture is calling justice and what the scriptures have to say about justice is that God is interested in restoring all things and all people. That that's what he's up to. He is interested in restoring every single, not only person that breathes, but every single thing on this planet. He wants to restore both the oppressed and the oppressor. He he wants to restore both the marginalized and those who are doing the oppression. He wants to restore and bring justice to both the strong and the weak. He basically says, look, humanity is in need of justice. And I am longing to step into this. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, Jesus says this to us. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, he says, You have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sound familiar? Yes. Otherwise, you might say it. Hey, the culture is telling you, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who, are, who you love, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? So we are called into this type of radical love. See, this is the radical and unique vision of justice that God calls us into. God is not interested in making people pay. That is our justice, and distinct from the scriptures. See, even in God's discipline, even when God is disciplining the oppressor, even when God is disciplining those who have acted out unrighteous in the world around us, his vision, his purpose is restoration for all human beings. So there's even justice in those who are committing injustice, (laughs) And he is committed to righting wrongs and protecting the vulnerable and restoring the wrongdoer. This is the message of the cross. The fact that we are all in need of God's restorative justice. That there's not a human being on the planet who doesn't look at their own life and say, I am in need of a God to come and bring righteousness into my life, into my space, and to redeem me. And then in return, we become people who have been redeemed, who have been restored, who out of God's justice towards us brought his righteousness into our life. So it makes sense that we would be those who are fueled to go seek out places where unrighteousness has plagued people and bring goodness and hope and beauty and light back into those spaces. See, people who are redeemed and who have been restored should be restorative agents everywhere they go in the world around us. Now, I want to look at at four ideals that are clear in the scriptures around what it means to look like, to live life as people of justice. Now, again, we are not going to tackle this issue in three conversations. We are not going to even scratch the surface, but I want to take a look at three ideals that I think are really critical as we step into the further conversations that we're going to have this month. The first thing is that because we are bearers of God's image, every single human being must be treated equally and with dignity. See, if everyone is an image of God, period, then they should be treated as an image bearer of God, period. No ifs, ands, buts around this. We must see each other through that lens first before we can see any other characteristics because until we see each other through that lens first, then we're not able to step into the secondary conversation of looking at any other label or any other identity that may be bringing injustice to them. See, from that space, we then have a platform or a plumb line to look out and go, oh, your image is being diminished. Your image is being altered or it's being messed with or it's being beaten down. (laughs) That's not okay because you are an image bearer first before anything. And so that moves us and drives us. And so we have a platform to see where that image is being diminished. Leviticus 24, 22 says this to us. In Levit- We're going to Leviticus, folks, today. 22, 24 says this. It says, uh, you must not offer the... Oh, that is not the right verse. Hold on just one second. Leviticus 24, 22. We're going to go there. <laughs> Leviticus 24, 22 says to us, 
You are not to have the same law. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. And he talks about this all throughout the scriptures about having two sets of laws. Hey, for these people, they get treated like this. For these people, they get treated like this. You know, if they have this skin color, they're treated like this. If they're not, they get treated like this. If they're this gender, they get treated like this. If they're not, they get treated like this. See, part of this is actually just saying everyone must have the same treatment in how we engage one another and how we connect to one another. And this is the driving concept behind justice in the Bible. In fact, there's a whole section in the scriptures that talks about make sure that your scales are fair when you're weighing out money. Now, you would think, why on earth would God care about scales, right? Like when you look out at the world, people are being murdered. People are being taken advantage of. There's war. And God's like, you know what? Hold on. We need to devote a whole section around making sure that your scales are calibrated. Right? Because he recognized that even how we calibrate our economic systems impacts our spirituality and vice versa. And so we got to make sure everyone is treated the same. And this means, uh, this means that we do not elevate or diminish someone above one another in any context. The second thing is this, and it has to do with individual responsibility. And I'm going to make two statements. We are responsible each individually for our sins. We are not always responsible for our outcomes. Now, let me just explain this because this is, I think, where Christians get in trouble and also where we clash with some of the cultural ideas around us. So, some of our life's outcomes are absolutely due to our choices. Can't get away from that. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says this. I, I love this uh, passage because it talks about ants. But it says this. It says, go to the ant, you sluggers. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no, no ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food and harvests. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come to you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So there are absolutely situations where our choices impact our outcomes, where our own brokenness, our own sin, our own life decisions impact how we engage the world. Because of this, we must recognize that this side of heaven, we will never have a earth, have a, have an, have a earth that is equal in terms of stuff. It's just impossible. Like it, it is absolutely impossible because guess what? Everyone gets to make their own decisions. And guess what? If I blow my money on stuff I don't need, I'm going to be poor. If I choose not to work, I might be poor in those situations. Now, even in people's poor choices, we have no right to shove that in their face and to say, well, look what you did. We are the people of restoration. So even when we say, hey, that was a weird choice that you made over there. I'm going to walk you through restoring your finances, your heart, your family, your marriage, your kids, so that you can get back to where you need to be. Now, flip side of this, there are also a lot of outcomes that are outside of people's hands. They had no, it wasn't their choice. It wasn't like, hey, I engaged this. This is what I was wanting to. How many of you were like, hey, you know what I would love this year? A pandemic, right? <laughs> You know what I would love this year? Have everything shut down. How many of you have said, man, I wish that my job would be taken away from me. I wish that that family member would die. I mean, we didn't get to choose the outcomes in these situations. And there are things all around us like famines or skin color or death or other situations that we do not get to choose. So we are not responsible for the outcomes of those situations or those circumstances that we did not choose. And as a community, not only should we not hold that against people, but we need to step into those spaces to also seek out, restore, and redeem that which was lost. See, part of us as a community, one of the reasons why we say, hey, we need to gather resources so that we can give those back out to those who are in need is so that, hey, when there are situations where people are, where it's out of people's hands, it's out of their control, it's out of their ability to restore, we can step in and say, hey, we got you. We're able to step in and restore. Or when someone's in need of counseling or mental health, or where there are things that take place, when someone leaves or someone dies or someone abuses, we can say, hey, we can restore. We know how to step into those spaces. And so while people 
are responsible for the outcome of their own sin. They are not always responsible for the outcomes of the circumstances that they find themselves in in life. Now, just like there's an individual part of this, there's also a corporate responsibility that comes with this. Because whether we like it or not, we are connected to one another, and one person's individual brokenness will affect me, whether you like it or not. This is at the heart of the scriptures. Now, here's the thing. You are not responsible for any other person's choices. Not a single person. Not your ancestors. Not anyone that came before you. We do not live in the Old Testament anymore where God holds people responsible for other people's sins. That has passed. God has come. He has cut off Old Testament law. We are no longer under that responsibility for one another. But there is a space in recognizing that brokenness is never isolated. That it impacts everyone else around us. In Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, we recognize that our entire faith around our own sin and brokenness is actually dependent on that concept. It says this in Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in that way, death came to all people because of all sinned. See, our faith actually says that, hey, there was this moment where sin entered the world because of this dude and this woman named Adam and Eve. And because of that, we are still feeling the consequences of darkness entering into the human story. And so we recognize that it permeates just like sin entered, this, entered humanity through one man. One person's sin can impact a group of people and vice versa. However, if we recognize that broken people create systems around us, then we should also recognize that there's probably going to be flaws in the systems. You know? If we recognize, hey, we are broken and flawed people, and then we go create cultures and civilizations and systems and societies, we should recognize that some of those systems, those cultures, societies are going to be infused with sin simply because the people that created them were sinful. (laughs) Now, I know... That right now we're living in a time where people are crying systematic injustice over almost anything. Where a potato head can be systematically unjust. (laughs) So, So I get it. However, we need to equally be careful of crying wolf. But we need to be more careful of shutting our eyes and ears when the systems are broken. So we don't need to be those that have a lens through which we see systematic injustice in everything. But simultaneously, we need to have those who have discerning eyes to see where systematic injustice is alive and well so that we can correct and restore that. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, uh, this is what it says to us. I'm using a lot of scripture today because I just want to show you how much this is ingrained in the scriptures. It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one person is honored, every part rejoices with this. So there is a communal connection that is involved with our sin and with our justice. The second thing is this, and I'm not going to talk about it a lot today because we're going to have a whole conversation on it next week, and that is advocating for the poor and the marginalized. That for those of us who have not been impacted by oppression or by circumstances that are beyond our control, we advocate for those who are. In Matthew chapter five, starting in ver- uh, Matthew chapter five, starting in verse thirty-five, this is what it says to us about this. It says, uh, "Sorry, I am getting all these scriptures mixed up." <laughs> Matthew uh, chapter twenty-five, verse thirty-five, twenty-five. Matthew twenty-five, verse thirty-five says this. Now, this is Jesus speaking to us, and he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? And the king will truly reply, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So there is an intimate connection between how we actually engage the marginalized in the world around us and how we engage God himself and vice versa in that relationship. More next week. But the last one that I want to talk about 
that is so critical is recognizing this, that my resources are not mine, so I give voluntarily. Now, when I talk about resources, I'm not just talking about your money. I'm talking about your time, your energy, your stuff. This last verse in Deuteronomy 24, 17, it says this to us in Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 13, it says, 25, 24, 17, 24, 17, all right. It says, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there and is why I command you to do this. Now, notice what the command is to the people. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave the remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. Now, you may think, that's completely unfair, This guy did all the work to make sure that his vineyards were growing, to make sure that his olives were fine, to make sure that his wheat was good. And then God says, look, if you leave some accidentally, don't go back for it. That's not yours. That's the fatherless. That's the widow. That's the foreigners. Now you would think rationally, you could say, no, no, that's that's not theirs. They didn't do anything for that. I worked for those, right? In our modern context, that's my paycheck. The church didn't do anything for that. That person didn't do anything for that. They don't deserve that. They, they should get up to it. But, but, but I recognize that there, if I am blessed by God, it is to bless others, to bring justice and righteousness where there is a lack of righteousness around me. See, followers of Jesus should be marked by generosity due to the generosity shown us. Not because it's like a rule that we have to follow, but because we recognize we are so blessed that we are called to be a blessing to other people. Now, there's a couple of things that this is that I want to make hit home here in this conversation. This is a voluntarily, this is a voluntary giving of our resources. This is never under compulsion to give, which by the way also doesn't mean through the government. There's a clarity here. Now, so this actually doesn't say, hey, give your money to the government and let the government do that for you. There's a difference between the advocating for those. But I'm going to say this. If you are a person that is advocating for less government spending, less government control, less taxation, you better show that with your own pocketbook. Because you, don't get, you do not get to be the follower of Jesus who says, hey, I don't want the government to take care of the oppressed and then not give yourself of your resources. That doesn't work. So it's one or the other. And this is why we are called to be a generous people. Do not let your politics be an excuse for your personal greed. And so allow yourself to recognize. Now look. I'm probably one of those people who's like, hey, I would much rather take my money and give it to someone who I know who is homeless or who is out on the streets than have the government do that for me just because I don't believe in a lot of bureaucracy. But if I'm going to have that position, I must be a person of generosity because it doesn't get to go both ways. See, people will not care about the sacrifice of Jesus until they see his representatives sacrificing on his behalf. Now, we could go on and on about all these concepts, and we will. We're going to spend two more day, two more Sundays engaging some of these ideas. But here is what you must hear today, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a person of justice. That's not like an option. And I know for some people, it's just like, because of the, all the politics around that, if you could just... What I want today, just take a deep breath and just release all of that and just go back to who Jesus is and what the scriptures call us to and to boldly step into those spaces.
See, part of the mark that you've connected to Jesus is that you are the bringer of light to where darkness has invaded parts of humanity. You are those who look around and say, where has righteousness been inhibited? Where has righteousness been held back? And how can I step into that? We, we bring righteousness wherever there is brokenness, wherever there is a lack or a need. Not because it's a nice idea. Not because I have like a warm, gushy feeling or because my politician told me or not to. But because we are those who recognize that every human being is an image bearer. And we serve a God who has laid a foundation of right being in the world that has actually set us up for hope and a future. And anywhere that image or that standard is being violated, we are the right makers. We are those who bring hope and restoration in this. And there is a moral standard that God calls us to as such. And by the way, this will require a radical shift in how we live. It will require a radical shift in how we spend our money. It will require a radical shift in how we calendar our time. It will require a radical shift in how we engage the culture around us. It'll, it'll change how you parent. But it will change the world. It will radically transform the world. And here's the thing. It will change the world both in this life and the next. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask just for clarity this morning for us as a community. For those here, for those watching. God, I know that that confusion has reigned over this conversation for the last couple years. And I know some are, are so frustrated that the church has not taken its rightful place in its stand for justice. Others have, have abdicated completely from the conversation because they just don't understand how it all works or how it all fits. God, I know others have looked at this and, and allowed politicians to lead the charge, God, but today I ask that you would just clear everything out and that you might show us what it means to be people of justice as you have called us to be, God. And this morning, if you're here, if you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I want you to know that, that God wants to redeem you so that you can be a redeemer in the world. He wants to restore you so that you can step into a space of restoring others. And the fullness of that can only be recognized when you're made alive in him, when you care about the things that he cares about. And today I want to invite you into a relationship with him, connecting with him. If that's you here in the room, and you're like, I've not yet connected to Jesus, I want to connect with him. I want to elevate him in my life. Would you just raise your hand? Just say, that's me today. No one looking around. Awesome. If you're online, you can just check that button that says, I'm raising my hand or I'm making a decision to follow Jesus today. I just want you to pray this prayer with me. They're not magic words. Just pray, dear Jesus, I give you my life. I know that I'm broken. And I know that you died and you came to life so that I could fully live. God, come and restore my soul so that I might then go out and restore the souls of others. I thank you for your hope, for your life, for your freedom. I thank you in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Humanity Church Podcast. We hope that this was a meaningful experience and we look forward to connecting again next week for another conversation around what it looks like to live by faith, to be known by love, and to be a voice of hope. 
Again, for more information about Humanity Church, you can visit us online at humanitychurch.com. And if you want to support the ongoing work here at Humanity Church, including this podcast, you can give online in about 10 seconds by texting the word Humanity Church, one word, to 77977. Thanks and have an amazing week.